I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution, a show dedicated to helping you actually live the life that you love. I'm your host, Amrit Sandhu, international speaker, global coach, and loving podcaster. As a gift for tuning into this podcast, I have something really special just for you. My premium short course, which can teach you how to meditate in just seven days. You can download it now at www.inspiredevolution.com forward slash learn. That's www.inspiredevolution.com forward slash learn. Learn how to meditate in just seven days. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this powerfully insightful conversation. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the latest episodes launching every Monday designed to help you live the life you love and keep you inspired to evolve. I think it's all angels just walk by. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution and boys, girls, plants, teachers, students of all kinds. It is such a treat to be here today. We have with us Marianne Williamson. Marianne, how are you? I'm great, thank you. I'm sorry though, I have to say it's not loud enough for me. (laughs) Is that getting better? Much better. Okay, awesome. I'll stay connected to my microphone for you just to make sure that the audio is coming out nice and clean. Thank you. For those tuning into Marianne for the first time, she's a prominent spiritual speaker. Such grace. In 1992, she published her first book, A Return to Love, which is the reflections on the principles of A Course in Miracles. This went on to become the fifth largest selling book in America in that year. She has since published 12 other books. The fourth published in 1997 was called Healing the Soul of America. Four of her books have been number one New York Times bestsellers. She's also written a book called A Politics of Love, which is a handbook for a new American revolution, which is releasing very soon. 
Through her own spiritual development and her first-hand experience of the world, she continues to deepen her awareness of the larger personal economic and social problems faced by people throughout the world. Her political and spiritual convictions, combined with her in-depth experience of people's everyday problems over a period of many years, has basically helped her continue to expand upon her ever-increasing realisation of the depth of the problems and the politics of running a country, but then also as well as God's unlimited capacity to solve them. Spiritual audiences haven't always been happy with her political activism, and political audiences haven't always been happy with her spiritual convictions. The combination of two is who she is, and for me personally, she's a shining beacon of inclusivity and purposeful living. It's such a pleasure to have you here, Marianne. Oh, thank you so much. I'd love to dive directly into what is in the heart of just why I've honored to have you here today. I guess for me, when I tune into what you stand for with, there's just such a, a spiritual activism is kind of what comes to the fore for me. And I just find it very potent, the kind of space that you're holding for us at this time and space and particularly this moment in time, but not the key thing for me in there is that there is, it feels like our generation or my generation specifically, it feels like there's a certain disconnect that we feel to politics and there's also a certain disconnect that we feel to spirituality. And I'd love to sort of start with the politics piece almost. If, yeah, why do you, do you think those two kind of have a, a correlation? Is there a reason that those both are dancing and there is that disconnect in the two? The people in your generation are 21st century people. Even those who were born in the 20th century will live the majority of their lives in the 21st. Now, the consciousness, which will be the dominant mindset of the 21st century, is different than the 20th, just like the 20th century mindset was different than the 19th. And the shift into a consciousness of the 21st century is particularly significant at this moment because it will make all the difference in whether or not human life on Earth will even be sustainable. It's a trans, uh, transition from a very much of a focus on the individual self to a focus on the collective self, from the me to a we, and also in terms of the social and political and economic dynamics of our of our world. Certainly, the the advanced uh, all of us, but particularly these the advanced uh, nations of the world, a shift from a a primarily economic bottom line to a a primarily humanitarian bottom line. Now, modern politics is very stuck in 20th century thinking. Not only is it the primarily economic rather than humanitarian uh, uh, mindset, not only is it the me rather than the we, but it also has nothing to do with root cause and everything to do with a kind of allopathic treatment of symptoms, which younger generations no more than to think actually means you're solving a problem at the deepest level because they've been schooled so much in people who are part of the evolutionary trend forward. So I totally understand why many people uh, of, uh, of younger years have, cannot relate to the 20th century uh, politics because the 20th century politics is so dominated by a 20th century mindset. I mean, the mm. 21st century politics is still so dominated by the 20th century. Right. In, a, in addition to that, there is such a sense that meaning has nothing to do with any of this. Mm. When I, because I'm not a young person, I have an institutional historical memory. I have a memory of a time when politics was juicy. 
Now, I can't speak to what's happening in Australia, but I can speak to what has happened in my country. I can speak, I was there. I experienced a time when there was juice to the whole thing. There was soulfulness to the whole thing. And even though we were not acting with the highest democratical, democratic principles all the time, there was at least a social consensus that we were supposed to. Mm, there was a passion. Today, today, young people don't have a memory of a time when it was anything other than this very corporate, boxed-in, mm-hmm. um, soulless pursuit. Mm-hmm. And they don't remember a time when there was, a, when there was a, enough of a psychological and emotional bonding with mm-hmm. aspirational political principles. So I understand the cynicism, but I also understand how dangerous that is. Because as the French have always said, if you don't do politics, politics will do you. And what's going on in my country is a, it's a profound awakening right now where we have come to understand millions of people, including millions of young people, have come to understand that chronic political disengagement only serves the forces of oppression. Mm. Yeah, that's so profound and so eloquently put. And one of the, when, I'm, when I heard you say that, one of the things that dropped in for me was uh, I was doing some research and I found you saying that the best version of ourselves is actually the worst version of ourselves if it doesn't include ourselves being extended into the public domain. And that is a spiritual concept. There is no, there is no serious religious or spiritual tradition that gives any of us a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. There is this, what I think of as a kind of newfangled corporate capitalist spirituality that's so involved with the personal self, but the personal self by definition will only have a limited conversation about compassion because it's all only about what affects me, my children, my tribe. And that quite simply is not the love that will save the world. When you're talking about such things as nuclear power, when you're talking about such things as environmental issues, when you're talking about such things as infectious diseases. You can't any longer see what's happening in Australia as a silo over here and Mm. what's happening in the United States as a silo over there. Our interconnectedness is far from theoretical. And in the, the times we're living in and the times that face us, we must make that shift in our thinking to a collective sense of self and a collective sense of compassion. How do we actually integrate this awareness of... um... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Of 
being interconnected? Because we obviously live in our experience of being siloed, but our awareness is continuously expanding. And I feel like technology is playing some role in that by way of alluding to the fact that, you know, we are interconnected. It's connecting us uh, virtually around the world. But how do we actually integrate that in, in like, well, how do you integrate it in your personal awareness? I guess let's start there. Each of us are responsible for the space that we choose to inhabit in life. And in any situation, you make a choice. You either make the choice consciously or you make the choice unconsciously. Am I only here for myself? Am I only here to get? Mm. Or am I here seeking to be of service to some higher mission, some higher conversation, some higher purpose than just what I might get? Am I here to give? Am I here to be part of a higher ground, a higher level of consciousness and vibrational frequency, which you end up finding is a far more exciting life because so much is going on right now that, you know, there's a line in the Course in Miracles where it says, at a certain point, you will not be on the path alone for you will be joined by mighty companions. So many people are picking up, particularly young people, but also older people. So many people are picking up on the aspirational potential of the planet right now. And also many of the people who are, are aware that we must not tarry, that the forces that would oppose those aspirational possibilities are very much on the move right now, certainly in the United States. So there's an urgency which, while frightening, given what's happening in my country, is also somewhat exhilarating. There's mm. a sense that rehearsal is over. We've been talking about these things for years. We've all read the same books now. We've all listened to the same tapes now. The curtain is up, and now it's time in your country, in my country, all over the world, for us to step it up, rise to the occasion, make the shifts that need to happen uh, for the sake of the survivability of humanity within the next 50 to 100 years. I find that really deep, the way you're sharing it as well. It's not just about, you know, our preferences. It's not just about what feels good, what looks good, or, you know, this is what is the moral right thing to do. It's actually based on evolution. It's can we actually continue down the path we're going? When you and I were children, we learned about evolution, and we learned that if a species is behaving in a way that is maladaptive for its survival, one of two things is going to happen. Either the species will mutate and evolve, or it will go extinct. Humanity is now displaying collective behavioral patterns that are maladaptive for our survival. We, we fight too much. We are, we are proactively attacking our own habitat, the mm. earth itself. We are fighting with weapons of mass destruction. Most of us don't even allow ourselves to think about the plethora of nuclear bombs that are on the earth, etc. And so we must evolve now. It's no longer a question of if, it, it's a matter of whether or, you know, if, it, excuse me, it's no longer a question of, what, of luxury. It's not a luxury to evolve at this point. It's an issue of the survivability of the human race. So what comes up for me is I... I resonate with what you're saying and I feel the call to arms and I feel the call to action. But when I reflect on my own uh, just community, sometimes I feel like there are, and I touch wood, feel very blessed to have a spiritual community around me, but a lot of them are specifically adverse to politics. 
um, because of many of the reasons that you shared. They feel like it is clinical, it is soulless. And if it's going to be soulless, then there's no space. Like why waste your time bringing your soul to it? Um, you know, live your own life, live and let live sort of thing. And I feel that there's this disconnect between spirituality um, and especially spiritual people. Sometimes I feel like are the first ones to shun po uh, politics. Well, let's be very clear. What you just described is not spiritual. Hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of things. It's narcissism wrapped up in pink bows. There's nothing spiritual about the perspective that you just described. There is no serious religious or spiritual path anywhere mm. that gives any of us a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. The, the great universal themes in all the great religious and spiritual traditions has to do with compassion for others. Jesus did not come to the earth to say, love yourself. Mm. He came to the earth to say, love one another. Mm -hmm. So, and we are here to heal the world. We are here to repair the world. Does, if, you, if you have a broken leg and you go to the doctor, the doctor doesn't say that that broken leg is such a toxic thing. Why don't we just deal with your hand instead? The doctor is the healer. If you're here to heal the world, you must engage with the wound of the world. So the attitude that you just described is it, it's the new capitalist spirituality. Mm. And let me tell you, a lot of people are making a lot of money based on that. And not mm. only are they making a lot of money based on that, but when someone is standing in the public sphere, even from a spiritual base, trying to express greater compassion within the political realm, often it's those very same people who will not speak up for nothing more than brand protection. And that's all about the money, it's all about the capitalist venture. Call it whatever you want to call it. I don't even want to judge it, but please don't call it spiritual because it's not. Mm. Thank you so much for calling that out. I really appreciate it. And one of the things that I I one of the things I struggle with is people often look at what you're up to and they sort of say they sort of brand it as socialism. And I don't really get why that is a thing. Um, when I would rather like to call it conscious capitalism like i've i've looked into your work and it's it's a really like it's it's yes like you have the power every time you spend a dollar you vote like you vote with your being your essence your energy the most enlightened societies in my opinion have elements of both capitalism and socialism what do you think the fire department is if not a socialist venture what do you think the police department is if not a socialist venture what do you think the public school system is if not a socialist venture i'm all for the free market and i am someone who's been treated very well by the free market because i had the very good fortune of having oprah winfrey support my books my problem is not uh, that some people can make a lot of money in countries like yours and mine. My problem in my country is that not enough people have a chance. If you're in the capitalist club and you make it in your country and mine, it's a wonderful thing, but not enough people can get into the club right now. So many people are on, and I can't speak to the conditions in, in Australia, but in the United States, there are so many people on economic lockdown. For instance, millions of American children go to schools and they don't even have the adequate school supplies or, or conditions that enable a teacher to, to teach the child to read by the age of eight. So that child statistically has more of a chance of ending up in prison 
than of getting a high school graduation. Now, where is that child going to have the capital to be a capitalist? So the issue is not, you know, I was at some very wealthy person's home recently and I said, I don't have a problem with people having homes like this. I have a problem with the fact that too many millions of people in this country don't have a chance in hell of ever living in this neighborhood. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about giving people enough universal opportunity through education, through healthcare, through economic opportunity, that if they work hard enough, they can play the game. And it is unreasonable and simply a false narrative to pretend that anyone, if they work hard enough, can make it. Because somebody who's a busboy, somebody who's a waiter, somebody who is working in a job that they cannot get past the survival mode, many of them are working even harder than some of the CEOs who are making hundreds of millions of dollars, but they are trapped. And that should not be true in the great nations of the world, such as yours and mine. Mm. And I was uh, doing some research as well and looking into uh, just some of the biggest proponents um, for capitalism. They were also the biggest proponents for a universal basic income at certain points as well. But we've well, kind that's of... True. Yes, Milton Friedman. Well, first of all, let's go back to the original main articulator of free market capitalism was Adam Smith. And Adam Smith said that free market capitalism cannot exist outside an ethical context. Then even Milton Friedman, who articulated the trickle-down economic theory, said that where the whole idea was that the main responsibility of the corporation should be fiduciary responsibility to the stockholder, even at the expense of the workers, et cetera. Even he said, none of this will work without a universal basic income. Mm. So the idea that a conversation such as people like you and I are having, conscious capitalism, et cetera, the idea that it's socialist is kind of silly, although I don't have a, I don't have this big fear. I mean, I think the Scandinavians are doing fine. I think mm. the English are doing fine. I mean, the people, you think people are getting rich in Norway? They're more <laughs> billionaires in Sweden than anywhere. Okay. <sighs> I, I can't speak, you know, Australians travel a lot. Mm. Americans don't travel enough. Mm. And so it's very easy to pull the wool over a, a lot of Americans' eyes because they haven't been out of this country. I've known enough Australians and know you guys travel and you travel and you see and so it's very easy to convince Americans who have not traveled that oh we have it better and then you travel and you go I don't think so (laughs) this airport is better these bridges are better this health care is better this education and so what you have in my country is a lot of young people Mm. who are now saying what's global capitalism ever done for me and are now saying, what am I supposed to be so afraid of in socialism? The free health care or the free college? Mm. So the serious capitalist voices, and I don't know how this is playing out in Australia, but in the United States, there are some very serious capitalist leaders who are beginning to have another conversation. You mentioned uh, uh, conscious capitalism, John Mackey. We have a gentleman named Jeremy Grantham, Ray Dalio, et cetera. These guys are not stupid. And they know that if they don't reclaim some sense of ethical center for American capitalism, that it won't be Bernie Sanders or Marianne Williamson who is going to break through their citadel. It's going to be a younger generation, such as your own, that's going to storm the Bastille over the next 20 years. 
And so what is your vision for the next 20 years? Do you see as a, yourself as a pillar in sort of supporting others come to the realisation that they can't hide behind the veil much longer and that it is time to pick up your arms and sort of push for transition that's coming? Otherwise, we don't stand a chance as a species. Is that a big part of your vision? And what does it look like 20 years from now if we fulfil that? Well, it's certainly part of my vision. It's been part of my vision for many years. And I've written books about it, the ones that you mentioned. And of course, I ran for president, as I'm sure you know. What I will do in the future, um, you know, it's part of my own spiritual practice to know that you take care of the future by living fully in the present. What I know is that you and I are having this conversation this moment. Mm. And my, my goal is to show up as fully as I can in this moment, in this conversation with you. I think we're living at a moment in world history, which is jumping out of the timeline. None of us can predict what's going to happen, where we're going to be, or what we will feel inwardly inspired to do in the years ahead. But when you do have a spiritual conviction that there is an internal guidance system within you, then you know, you'll know what you're supposed to do um, when you need to know. Yep, there's that element of surrender that the grace of spirit affords you is what I'm hearing. So on that note, when you're talking about um, being in the moment, I have to confess to you, there's actually a quote that you wrote in a book that's actually graffitied on my mirror at home. It's not massive proponent of graffiti, but it's graffitied on my mirror at home. And it says that our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous, And actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It is actually in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. I just want to thank you for those words that were written. They inspire me every single day. Thank you. Thank you. That's from my book, Return to Love. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Just, yeah, your blessings are not lost on us. And one of the things that comes to me is, for me, it's, it's an emboldening call to action every day is to, you know, there are days where you don't, like, I don't feel like Mr. Inspired Evolution. I'll be absolutely honest with you. But then, you know, it's like, me giving myself permission to step up, do the work, to shine, to do the best that I can, to be inspired, to evolve, then unconsciously, I don't know, maybe it's just walking down the street, that one extra smile that I managed to pass to that person, you know, changes their day. And I feel the responsibility, the call to action that is embroidered in that. Um, My query is, how does something like that show up in your life? Like, I can imagine that and maybe I'm projecting, but the the responsibility that you feel must be quite quite a thing to to shoulder. Well, I don't have any myth of indispensability going on. I don't have any sense that other people need me to do anything. Mm. I do believe that being a public person, you have a responsibility not to be perfect, but to try your best. Mm. And people 
can feel it. People can smell it. So I would be hurting myself if I were to do something and saw a reaction in other people. Oh, she's not who we thought she was. Mm. Now I'm getting plenty of reaction of, oh, I don't like her politics. That's fun. <laughs> like you said, some of the spiritual types don't like my spiritual, my pol politics. And some of the political types go, why does she keep going on about God? <laughs> That's fine because I'm just being for who I am. But I'm at a point in my life, regardless whether I was a public person or not, where an effort at personal impeccability, not the achievement 24 seven, mm. but the serious effort is everything. Mm. Whether it's with the public or with your family, um, you know, anything that applies is an issue of right living is an issue whether it's in your personal life or your public, you say you have a responsibility. Well, I'm a mother, so I have a responsibility. I have friends, so I have a responsibility. I'm a citizen of my country. I have a responsibility. I'm a citizen of the world. So I don't think I have in that sense any more responsibility. Look at someone like yourself. I'm sure you feel it too. I mean, that's part of becoming a serious human being. And each of us decides for ourselves what ground to stand on. And if you want to have a serious career and you want to have a meaningful life and you want to have dignity and you want other people to respect you, you want to be someone that you would respect if you were watching, then yes, you have a responsibility. But that doesn't mean you don't take an hour off to cry or rage or a day off to not even think about those things. I mean, there is an aspect of self-care, rest, because these are very challenging times. Mm. And if we don't take care of our nervous system, then things can really go wrong. We can make mistakes. We can express ourselves in ways that we wish we hadn't. Mm. I mean, you know, we're living at a time when someone can ruin their career with one tweet. It's crazy. So, you know, all of us are... It's very intense. Yeah, the that's, alignment that meditation, that's, et cetera, gives us. That's why I ask. And what I'm hearing, one of the things you sharing is that this conversation around service, um, it's a really big, pardon me just a sec, sorry. Uh, this conversation around service, which is basically learning to serve others is a big part of my spirituality by faith. I'm a Sikh and we live by the ethos of service. Um, and then also, one of the lessons that I've been learning in my life is not at the cost of service to others, but in order to be able to be of greater service to others, one must learn to serve oneself just so Absolutely. that they're capacitated. Absolutely. And once you understand metaphysically that there's really no place where I stop and you start, mm -hmm. there is no, there's really nothing and no one outside yourself. Mm. So, serving others is serving yourself because even though on a material plane, what I give to you, I no longer have on a spiritual plane. I only get to keep what I give to you. <laughs> and I also agree with you and have learned as well. If I'm not 
taking care of my own self in a healthy, appropriate way, I will have less available to give uh, in, a, in a larger sense. And that, mm. and that is the healthy, meaningful, and appropriate ideas around uh, self-care. I love that. Thank you so much for, for affirming that as well. So one of the things that um, I heard you talking and uh, elsewhere, and this really, really got to me, the way you articulated it, I'd never heard it put this way before. And for me, perhaps I'm wrong to look at it this way, but this is kind of my perspective on it. I was looking at love as sort of like a feminine force and power as sort of a masculine force. And you were reflecting on Martin Luther King's quote, which was the power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental. And in fact, anemic power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. And just to hear your thoughts on power and love completely transformed my awareness and brought to light that I have an aversion against power and that I shouldn't. Well, that's a particularly important thing for you as a man because there is a divine masculine just as there's a divine feminine. And that's very important to remember. The yin and the yang of the active and the passive, there's a, a, an aggression to creativity. Hmm. There is a dynamic power to the masculine, and there is a magnetic power to the feminine. But whether or not they are filled with love has nothing to do with gender and has nothing to do with the masculine or the feminine. I've had, I'll give you an example, <clears throat> something I saw in my own life when I ran for president. There was a moment when I was deciding whether or not to get out of the race. <clears throat> this is a particularly important issue because I believe in retrospect that I got out too soon. Mm. Now, I had run out of money and I was being mocked and vilified. That's part of the political scene. And I had a lot of women around me understanding my pain, understanding <clears throat> how I was so beaten up, just wanting me to get out of my pain. Maybe it's time to just let this go. Mm. And I had three male friends who would not stop calling, who would not stop texting. Do not get out. Joe Lewis regretted for his whole life that he didn't get out up one more time when Muhammad Ali uh, came after him. You've still got time on the clock. Don't get out. And you know what? They were right. Mm. Now, they weren't expressing less love, but they had a very masculine view of the whole thing. Mm. They actually saw, they were an important correlative. It's funny because when I got out of the race and there were two other candidates, and I, one of the reasons I regretted it, there were two other candidates where I knew I would have gotten more votes in New Hampshire than they did. They weren't, in all this embarrassment and humiliation, I don't know how many votes I'll get, et cetera. The masculine and the feminine, and this is not necessarily gender because the, these, mm. these things it's are the also in relationships, of mm. course. They're both important. Mm. Sometimes in life it's about get out there, get up, do it. That's not less loving. Mm. I mean, when a parent, for instance, I don't know if you have, do you have children yet? Not yet, but soon, touch wood. <laughs> I hope so for you. You know, coddling your child's upset and fear 
isn't always the best parenting. Sometimes the best parenting is you get up and you go back in there and you show what you've got or else you're going to raise a, a weak person. So I believe these masculine and feminine elements are, are equally important. And I, these days I hear things said about men, which if people said them about women, uh, we would be all upset. You know, not all masculinity is toxic masculinity. Mm. And I think that's important to remember. Yeah, and when we're talking about um, opposing forces, I might take that as a little segue to dive into this conversation around waging peace. It's yeah. another term that you shared with me again, and I was tuning in and I was like, why does not anybody ever put that that way? <laughs> like, I've never heard it that way before. And it made a lot of sense. Um, but it also, at the same time, I have no idea what it looks like. There is no archetype or imagery for me to tune into. And I realize that may be part of the problem. What is waging peace? Okay, well, first of all, let's start with a medical model. So Western medicine used to be tied to the old allopathic model. Hmm. You didn't necessarily feel you needed to take care of your body through nutrition or exercise or lifestyle. But then if disease occurred, the old style medicine allopathic model was to seek to suppress uh, or eradicate the symptom through an external remedy. We've now moved into an integrative model. And part of that integrative model is the realization that you have to cultivate health with exercise. You have to cultivate health with the food you eat. You have to cultivate health through right living. You have to, that, that sickness is the absence of health. Health is not the absence of sickness. Mm. Now take that same model and analogize it to peace. War is the absence of peace. Peace is not the absence of war. But we have a very old-fashioned allopathic attitude. Don't worry about cultivating peace. Just if violence arises, do what you can to suppress the symptoms. Now, with Address more the symptoms. Yeah, I get that. A very significant issue because there is so much money to be made mm. in prisons, and there's so much money to be made in war. There are not as many corporate dollars to be made in waging peace. Now, what does that look like? It's very practical and it's very specific. There are four factors which when present, statistically indicate that there will be a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of violent conflict. Number one, expanded economic opportunities for women. Hmm. Number two, expanded educational opportunities for children. Mm. Number three, the reduction of violence against women. And number four, the amelioration of unnecessary human despair. We should see large groups of desperate people as national security risks because mm. large groups of desperate people become a petri dish out of which societal dysfunction is basically inevitable. Mm. Treat people right, you're gonna have a more peaceful society. And that's why when we talked before about moving from a primarily economic bottom line to a humanitarian bottom line, the, the question guiding public policy begins to shift from what would increase short-term profit for huge multinational corporations to what would help someone thrive. 
Mm. What would help? And now also for me, children are such an important part of this because we know things now that we didn't know 30 years ago about the extraordinary neuroplasticity of the human brain and so forth. So much happens before the age of eight. We mm. need to massively front end our resources into the lives of children. If you want an abundant, peaceful society 20 years from now, the most important thing to do is take better care of your children. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here is what would help people thrive? What would help people soar? What would help people spread their wings? What would make people manifest their dreams? What would make people actualize their potential? That's, that, those are the people who are going to make more money. Those are the people who are going to start businesses. Those are people who are going to be happy uh, employers, happy employees. They're going to have time for their kids, for their families, for their lovers, for their spouses. That's how you build both peace and economic abundance. And everything else is just a lie that serves a few people. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that. So is what would be the message to the children of tomorrow that you would like to share? That we love you. That we mm. love you and that we have problems, but we're handling it because we're the grown-ups and we're handling it. <laughs> Trying to do the best we can with what we've got. And then maybe and hopefully a little bit so better. Much. <laughs> you as a citizen of Australia, me as a citizen of the United States, this is an example. We must own. You and I talked about the responsibility that we have. The reason we have so much responsibility is because we have so much power. Mm. If you look at the power that you have to effectuate change as a citizen of Australia, and you look at the power that I have to effectuate change as a citizen of the United States, we are part of a small minority of the world's population mm. who have the kind of power that we have. And with that power comes responsibility. That's why when we say things like, oh, we do the best with what we've got, we've got a lot. And I think we need to remind each other of that. Yeah, I really feel that when you're saying it, Marianne. And so one of the things that comes up for me is, do you think some people are actually overwhelmed by the power that they have and they perhaps try not to shoulder it? I believe that there's an issue here of education. Mm, okay. I, I, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the United States, too many people are undereducated, um, underinformed about mm. much of my nation's history, about race, about all kinds of things. I find it very empowering to know the history. It's very empowering to me to know ways in which what's happening now is a repeat of what's happened before, mm. to know how my ancestors handled it. But I was taught not only by a good public school education, but by my parents, by my family. And most of the people I see who feel overwhelmed were never taught to connect the dots. And so they're overwhelmed because they don't see how this connects to this. Mm. But I find that once, you know, people are good, people are decent, and people are intelligent. And I've seen a lot of situations where someone felt overwhelmed and powerless, but then when they were given a 10-minute education about a particular issue and they went, oh, I see. And by the way, Americans are very good at that. You know... When I worked in Europe quite a lot, there's a, a distinction between the Europeans and the Americans culturally that I find very interesting. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact 
that Americans and Australians, we left the old world. Mm. Europeans are descended from people who stayed and made the transitions there. Mm. So what I found uh, working in, in Europe was that the average European is definitely better educated and mm. better informed than the average American. Right. On the other hand, I would notice with European audiences, I would be talking about some issue and the average European had read the paper, the average European gets one hour of news at night. They basically know what's going down on the planet. Mm. But then when I would say something very typically American, like, therefore, it seems to me clearly what we ought to do is, their eyes would glaze over because that synapse from this is the problem, this is what we got to do about it. Action. Not necessarily the same. In America, it's absolutely the opposite. And you'll have to tell me how it is in Australia. In mm. America, it's the opposite. You're talking to an average audience and the things they don't know would terrify you. Mm. However, you give them a thumbnail sketch and the light comes on and mm. they're jumping up on chairs, forming nonprofits. We're not going to take it. We're going to do something. <laughs> It's unbelievable. It's the exact opposite. That's why we all need each other because every nation has a personality character. <laughs> I don't know where Australia falls in there. You'll have to tell me. Yeah, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting reflection. I do feel like we we're not we don't jump up and down in arms too readily um, about issues, but I do find that our issues sometimes being a young country are what the rest of the world would perhaps call trivial. Um, you know, so sometimes we're voting based on, you know, better internet connection speeds, which I guess I get that it's a political topic, but at the same time, what about the homeless? Like there are certain human decencies, that despair that we're talking about, um, that is completely neglected in the face of certain things, which are, can we be better connected? Um, just through the digital age and the rest of the world. And it's like, yes, the rest of the world, but what about us? You know, what about our, you know, I walked, I literally walked down my street and we have homeless people. Um, what is, what is going on to meet their needs, you know? And yet, yeah, so this is kind of. The, Are one of those voices of conscience and that's the salvation of every country. Those who will stand up for human conscience and human compassion. So one of the one of the things that you were referring to as well, which was the point four in waging peace, was this despair that we're talking about. Um, you're saying that you know we, we like it's it's an identifier that perhaps you know there is a call to there needs to be peace waged. There's despair in a lot of places, in a lot of places around the world. Do you think the system? Like that is a symptom of the system kind of screaming at us to do something about it? And uh, of course it is. Yeah. Course it is. Human despair damages people. And mm. damaged people damage people. Mm. So right now, we just seek to eradicate the symptoms of social dysfunction that are almost inevitable arising from all that damage. What we need to do is not just repair lives, but from that early age, cultivate lives in which people are not living in survival. People are living in the space of the actualization of their dreams. And then peace flows more automatically and easily among them because they're able to build healthy relationships, healthy communities, and so forth. 
So, as I said, we should see large groups of desperate people, not as a peripheral issue, but addressing the suffering of other sentient beings should be our core political as well as spiritual mission. That's how you wage peace, and that's how you responsibly provide a, a reasonable possibility that our grandchildren will be able to live in happiness and in peace. I really appreciate what you're saying. One of the things that I continuously pray for, and I don't really share my prayers with too many people, but uh, here we are, it's you, so I think I have to, um, is I, I pray that our wisdom forever outpaces our knowledge is, is one of the things that I keep, keep sort of well, going for. That's a very, very reasonable and, and productive prayer. Look at nuclear bombs alone. And Einstein knew this. I mean, the scientific prowess and technological expertise that was necessary to develop the nuclear bomb is stunning. But what is happening as we speak is that our, our technological and scientific abilities and weapons of mass destruction are a perfect example, outweigh our wisdom. Mm. And that's why, you know, we need young people to continue to have sex and continue to procreate or the, the human race will not continue. But if we don't produce more wisdom, the human race will not continue either. We're a risk to ourselves. Yep. And I think we're getting some real, more than a slap on the wrist. We're getting some slaps in the face. Um, COVID is an example. We were obviously skating on very thin ice regarding infectious diseases, but we're skating on similarly thin ice regarding nuclear power. We're skating on similarly thin ice regarding environmental uh, issues as well. It's yep. a time where we will awaken or unimaginable nightmares could meet us down the road. Thank you so much for such a powerful call to action. Marianne, I, again, you know, for me, it's, I, I think just expressing my personal gratitude is probably a great place just to sort of be here in this moment. For me as a young man, just to have a, like to have elders is something that's really, really powerful. And I think especially in today's society, the way we're raised, the way we're grown up, there is a disconnect. I even just see the way elderly are chucked into nursing homes. Um, you know, when we kind of lose that connected connection to our, like the, the wisdom that is then handed down through the elders in our society. And one of the people we've had on the podcast before has reflected, you know, there is a difference even between elders and elders, you know, and the elders, can answer the question, what did you know and what did you do with it? And so in that light, I just really want to thank you for being an elder and, and you know, holding yeah. the space to for us to, yeah, even just little pieces that drop in for me, like, hey, love is the power, but there is also the power to put in to love. You can wage peace. Like for a big part, these are ideas, but ideas can really shift a person's consciousness, their psyche, their way, their being. As you know, your reflections on a course of, of miracles have changed the lives of so many. So just my humble gratitude, my deepest gratitude. Thank you so much for your work, your presence. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope to meet you someday in Melbourne.
I really look forward to having you here. And for those that are tuning in, I will put a link to some of Marianne's books into the show notes as well. So if you're curious, A Return to Love is a great place to start, even though it was written so long ago. And I also think I'll put a link to the new book as well, just so you guys can tune into a bit more of the conversation around the politics of love. Thank you. God bless you, darling. Have a wonderful, I guess, day for you now. (laughs) Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. All my best. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening in to another amazing episode of The Inspired Evolution. If you're loving these episodes, make your way across to YouTube, click subscribe. Fresh episodes are launched every Monday with highlights being released throughout the week. Thank you so much. And hey guys, just so you know, a lot of love, heart, soul and work goes into these episodes. So if you could, please leave us a five-star review and comment on iTunes. I love reading your positive feedback. It fans the flames of the passion to continue to create and help you live the life that you love. Thank you so much for your wonderful feedback. I can't wait to see you again in the next episode. Big love from Amrit. And remember to stay inspired to evolve. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 